This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Ironic knowledge in Knight's Black Agents. Jan Van Eck, Spy. Weird War Mummies. And the Quasi-War. You've perfected the do do You've mastered the mashed potato. You know your dance crew is the hottest around, but now it's time to prove it. Breakdancing Meeples is a real-time dexterity game of, you guessed it, Breakdancing Meeples. Designed by Ben Moy and published by our friends at Atlas Games. To play, roll your Meeple dance crew as fast as you can, over and over. Lock in useful rolls and re-roll the rest to complete dance routines and score points. After four one-minute dance rounds, the crew with the most crowd appeal wins the trophy. Breakdancing Meeple comes in a metal tin that's nearly as indestructible as your high school boombox. It plays two to four people, ages six and up, in five minutes. Find Breakdancing Meeple's at your friendly local game store or at atlas-games.com backslash breakdancing. Because when beats bump, Meeple's gotta dance. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut. And here in the gaming hut, that's odd, Robin, I, I, don't, I don't see a rule book. I just see a a printout, and I can't read the title from here. R- Robin, do you suppose the GM is concealing something? Or maybe not. Not at maybe all. Maybe not. Beloved and Eisner Award-winning Patreon backer Gene Ha has a question regarding the vampire concealment from players at the start of a Knight's Black Agents campaign. He says that would require high player trust in the GM. But flipping that question around, what about high GM trust in the players? How would a GM handle a campaign in which the players know that vampires exist, but the characters do not? Robin, what are your thoughts on firewalling and specifically, I guess, firewalling in Knights Black Agents? Right. Uh, So once again, uh, we have a general question with a specific focus. Uh, So let's uh, zoom on out to the general question of having players who know more than their characters and doing that uh, when you get buy-in. I would suspect that at least as often as not, people know that they're playing Knights Black Agents when it starts out uh, because they may have said to their GM, hey, run Knights Black Agents for us. It's such a great game. I can't wait to play it. Yeah, it's by that that charming and uh, erudite Ken Height. And you might uh, find yourself also just, you know, knowing your players, not you might not be sure whether they're into vampires or not, or, or you might want to, you might be trying to sell you running a game as opposed to somebody else running a game. So there's lots of circumstances under which you want to sort of set aside that uh, admittedly fun thing, uh, that moment when the players are surprised to discover that they're uh, vampires. And uh, certainly in all sorts of games for many years, I've not bothered to try and conceal very much uh, from the players, but rather enforced the difference between player knowledge and character knowledge. And in this case, as we often say here on the show, lean into it by uh, asking them to uh, create characters that are somehow related to the vampire thing that you're going to do. And so it might well be that uh, you're playing another ep- episode of Knights Black Agents after p- having played it before. That's another reason to uh, just trust them and, and go with it. And so that doesn't mean, however, that you can't surprise them because often the the best moment of surprise in a work of fiction or a game is one in which you satisfy their expectations in a way that still surprises them in some way. So the classic version of that in this case would be, yeah, sure, they know they're vampires, but uh, Ken, how many different types of vampires does Knight's Black Agents present uh, to the GM to spring on their players? Uh, Within the four general types, a veritable panoply of types. I don't want to say all vampires, which is, I guess, hundreds of types, but most vampires are in there somewhere. So easily, you know, scores of vampires, Robin, scores. And so that can be the twist, can be a quite different sort of vampire. Or you can give them the old double twist of, and, you know, with when you're doing this, of course, you have a sense of what kind of vampire your players probably really want. And I would suspect that often they want Draculas. They want good old fashioned 
if not Drac the Dracula, they want they might want Dracula like vampires. So you could fake them out for a while by making them seem like you know the good old alien parasite style vampires, and then uh, that turns out to just be a, a front. So the whole general idea that you are spies fleeing from vampires uh, leaves you the GM with plenty of uh, twists to lay upon your uh, players while still. Uh, having them able to design characters that uh, belong in a horror spy movie and give you all sorts of things to go on. Yeah, that's that's one of the great advantages of firewalling. Once you get players who can reliably do it, which I think happens, and again, maybe the vast majority is overstating it, but I think it happens more often than not, that you get, uh, that that's the standard behavior of, of players after they've uh, played for a while and gotten their sort of... Uh, their, their, their basic moves down, their yaya's out, and they're now just playing toward story and playing toward making the, 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 the event at the table uh, exciting and memorable in and of itself, as opposed to just a tactical challenge, which is, while perfectly exciting, does not lean into the, the virtues of, of, of collaborative storytelling the way that uh, role-playing, I think, is ideally uh, suited to do. So, players who are good firewallers, or at least used to firewalling, can have lots more opportunities with their players or with their characters rather to indulge in dramatic irony. So of course, when you're running a, a surprise vampire campaign, the players will just be sort of general super spies. You run around and it's like, Oh goodness, super spies and vampires. Pretty great. But if they know that there's vampires, when they set out to make the characters, they can say, Oh, my character, um, uh, you know, was, reported missing in a uh, mission in Romania. And then he came back out and he's fine. He doesn't know why everyone looks at him weird and why he was burned from MI six super fast after that. Or you have a player who's like, Oh, my character, he's perfectly normal, but he has uh, a rare blood condition and he has to, you know, go to Switzerland and get treatment for it all the time. And uh, you know, just in the next booth with uh, Keith Richards or whatever. And then <laughs> so that's not a rare blood condition. That's just heroin addiction. But uh, he goes to the clinic and, Oh, Oh, my goodness, the clinic has changed. And now he's, you know, backed out of that and he's on the run, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you can have the opportunity for your characters to begin enmeshed in a creepy supernatural world. And you can have that whether the character knows it or not. I mean, the character may just think that, you know, those trips to the clinic are for cancer as opposed to a rare blood disease. And so he just goes and uh, idiotically gives up a, a couple of liters of his blood and they're like, okay. Uh, looks like your leukemia is under control, pal. Take off. And then he, uh, goes off and has his spy adventure. So the, the, those possibilities magnify and multiply if, uh, the players are working with you to present personalized hooks, personalized dilemmas, personalized dramatic irony and dramatic possibilities for their characters. And again, I don't, I don't say that firewalling is easy, but I think it's like riding a bike. Once you've gotten used to it, it becomes easy. What do you what do you think about firewalling in general? Right, because all, all you have to do as GM is occasionally someone will do something in character that is not based on their the character's knowledge. But all you have to do is keep track of that. And go, oh, remember you, you, you the player know that, but uh, Sheena Harker doesn't, mm -hmm. and you know then they have to go, oh yeah, right. And so I, I think that the uh, sort of quasi adversarial style of old school D and D is sort of leaking into our assumptions here as to. Uh, you know, if the players know too much, they will take advantage of it. But, you know, knowing more just lets you get them in more trouble. Yeah. And that's Always. not, a, a, <laughs> that's an, you know, an, an apple for the teacher. And if they really want to leverage their out of uh, character knowledge to make something happen, if they credibly go about a way of finding it so that it makes sense in the narrative, that's entertaining too. It's entertaining to watch them do it. And uh, it's uh, cool to have the thing happen. And of course, as previously mentioned, as a GM, you can always deliver a twist to the expected thing. And if the uh, player who's been leveraging their knowledge in a way that they, that seems kind of hinky uh, then kind of steps in it everyone else at the table will really enjoy that it'll be a big jolt for everybody so you know the, the days of uh this monster only works if you don't know what its stats are so don't look at the monster manual that is its own thing and people can enjoy it but it's far from the the realms of uh, Knight's Black Agents. And if the characters do know, there's all sorts of different ways that you can sort of style 
the campaign to uh, have a slightly different premise. Like it could be they're the agents of Edom who uh, they've all been in disgrace for seven years. They've all been working in the various uh, gray precincts of the British bureaucracy, and they've all been uh, uh, separated from one another because seven years ago, they're the ones who let the vampires escape and uh, they've been out of the game. And now they're all uh, being gathered back together uh, because it's their job to finally undo what the what they did when they made their mistake seven years ago. That's a different premise than the default one. But guess what? That can turn into car chases in uh, Mini Coopers in Rome uh, just as fast as any other can. Just as easily. And, and you can do a different thing where, for example, they're agents of Edom and they've been hunting vampires in uh, Romania for uh, their career. And now there's a shakeup, the change of policy at the highest levels, and they're sent to, you know, uh, China and they have to uh, liaise, quote unquote, with the Chinese room 452, which is actually Edom's attempt to get uh, a hold of a Chinese vampire. But guess what? All of the theories about uh, Chinese vampires are different from the ones they've hunted in Romania. And so their vampirology, their player knowledge of Hammer horror films is is dubious at best when faced with the Jiang Gui and the Jiang Shi and the other um, uh, 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 Chinese vampires, uh, which you can go on an endless deep dive into the ways that their lore is different. And then, of course, they also have the fish out of water experience of being uh, under the thumb of some totalitarian spy agency. And so they have to do things super covertly until, of course, it turns into them being hunted the length and breadth of China by the Ministry for State Security with lots of, I guess it wouldn't be mini Cooper chases in China. It'd be Chinese spoiled billionaire Maserati chases across China. Uh, you could also do uh, sort of go back in time and uh, play out the thing seven years ago when everything all went wrong. And uh, you can either give the players some disposable characters so that half of them get eaten. And then their, you know, a generation later, their relatives and descendants uh, come along to try and make everything good. You can uh, run a thing where the first uh, scenario is you kill the last vampire and everything is fine. And then, uh, oh, wait a minute, something else has happened. And uh, you discover that, oh, wait, you've been killing vampires on behalf of this other more powerful, completely different rival group yes. of, uh, of bloodsuckers. So uh, there's uh, all sorts of ways that it, it opens up uh, if you just uh, let people know that they're playing uh, Knights Black Agents. Yep. And over and above that, if you are aware that the game is about vampires, you can build a character that you feel better about playing, right? Um, you might ordinarily not want to play, you know, I don't know, a, a, a priest who worked in the, uh, with the CIA with solidarity. But if you know, there's a vampire game afoot, now you get, you get to play the priest because he's going to be super valuable and important, maybe in a vampire, or he'll be entertainingly baffled throughout a vampire game, either one. And that gives you an opportunity to branch out and do some things just as a player over and above the question of what it does for the GM as a player. It lets you sort of tailor your, uh, your experiences in a way that, you know, you're not able to do even in an F20 game where nothing is particularly surprising, but you can't really optimize because it's like, oh, we're, we're going to be fighting a lot of manticores. I better make a bard. Um, no one ever says that at the beginning of an F20 game. You wind up fighting a lot of manticores. You're stuck with a, you know, a, a boring old uh, dwarf and you, and you can't do anything fun with them. And so knowing about the game beforehand lets you, the player, engage in not min-maxing, not munchkinizing, but just optimizing for your own story experience uh, as as a character. And again, as you say, if you're the kind of player who munchkins and min-maxes, then when you reach your inevitable comeuppance, it's fun for everybody else and probably fun for you because you didn't go into this blind. You know that the GM is going to only allow so much of this nonsense. Right. And I guess other bits of advice, uh, there's two ways to go about when you do the reveal that is revealed to the uh, characters, but not the players. Uh, one idea would be, oh, well, you just do it quicker because everybody knows that's happening. So you might as well get there. Um, the other uh, one, however, would be to have them investigating uh, or running away from even two separate groups, right? That they're, and it's like, well, we know there's vampires. We know there's bad guys. There's two sets of bad guys, but which one are the vampires? And it might also be a challenge to see 
how long you can go and keep it interesting and exciting when everybody is knows the shoe is going to drop and see how mm-hmm. far you can go without dropping the shoe and that's that, like that matter of exquisite tension of just bringing it up to the final threshold of frustration and then relieving that uh, frustration so you could uh, set that up as a challenge for yourself as uh, just uh, just how uh, far along the road you can go before the uh, before the teeth come out maintaining plausible deniability as they're there well these probably they're probably just pcp addicts that were sufferers from you know tuberculosis or whatever right and so that oh my goodness and uh on, on a similar note you can play into the mythology in a different way and i and you see this very often in, in cthulhu mythos games where the players quite often will have read lovecraft and know about all the gods and monsters and the literal a big part of the fun is that their player characters discover uh, oh, Necronomicon, I wonder what that is. And you, the player, are enjoying being the buffoon who reads the Necronomicon when you, the player, are like, no, but uh, you have that, you know, don't go into the into the crypt moment with your own character as the world unfolds around you. In Nice Black Agents in Dracula Dossier, for example, you can do that if you play the beginning of the Dracula Dossier as the cast of the book. And, oh, I'm Jonathan Harker. I'm a British spy and uh, I'm a British agent undercover as a solicitor. I wonder what's going to happen to me. And you have the fun of seeing the novel Dracula come into existence around you. And may the fun for you might be the challenge of maintaining uh, faithfulness to the literary canon as long as you can. Or it might be the challenge of well, why doesn't Jonathan Harker just finish off Dracula there in the in the crypt with his shovel? I'm gonna I'm gonna spend all my stability and try and just smash his face in with a shovel and see what that does to the Bram Stoker uh, narrative. And then those become riffs and changes that you're doing within a, a framework that you already know uh, the story of, and then that's its own kind of fun over and above just knowing generally there are vampires. You may know specifically, yes. That nobleman, uh, Count Dr- Dracula, uh, he's also a vampire, and I know it, the player, but as a character, I get the fun of walking into his, uh, into his parlor, literally. Right. Um, and you're much more likely to have a player who really digs into the idea of being in denial and never acknowledging that there are vampires mm-hmm. or something weird going on. There's one of those in every group. They love yes. playing that. Yep. That's a, standard playing thing to the do. Scully is great. Yeah. Yeah. And in the unlikely event that you have someone who's, playing in genuinely bad faith, but for some unaccountable reason, you do want to keep them at the table. Uh, then you could engineer them into, well, if they know they're vampires and start acting as if they're vampires, without knowing that you know, arrange for them to suspect that someone is a vampire and leave some stakes out for them and do. And then they, you know, act on that uh, knowledge they think they have. And then guess what? That wasn't a vampire. That was just a regular that was, person. That was a tuberculosis guy on PCP. <laughs> yeah, that's your contact. Now what do you do, man? And so uh, now that we've come up with a mm-hmm. whole bunch of ideas to uh, lean into player knowledge and Knights Black Agents, it's time for us to uh, profess no knowledge whatsoever of whatever segment is coming up next. As the bloated sun flickers its last. As the final remnants of once mighty mountains dwindle to sand. A rare opportunity for entirely legal theft presents itself to the discerning wanderer. For a few short days, the complete Dying Earth role-playing game has returned to the Bundle of Holding. Published by Pelgrane Press. Based on the classic fantasy stories of Jack Vance. And designed by Robin D. Laws. The Dying Earth RPG sends you, a witty wayfarer unencumbered by scruples, on a picaresque journey of swindles, comeuppances, baroque magic, and ravening creatures. Get the core book and six other essential titles in PDF for a mere 1895. Or upgrade to the full deal and get a staggering 17 more supplements. That's the entire Dying Earth line, all in your electronic bookshelf. Do not tarry with your viands by the banks of the scom. The bundle of holding can hold this unbelievable bargain only until August 17th. Rush immediately to bundleofholding.com slash presents slash Dying Earth 2020.
It's time once more to have our uh, uh, retinas scanned, to uh, leave our fingerprints, to undergo a background check, because it's once again time to enter the Tradecraft Hut. And as is our want, we're going to do a historical edition of the Tradecraft Hut, one which has a lot of really impressive early Renaissance paintings on the wall. Because, Ken, uh, uh, we've often spoken about how basically every other major writer in the history of English literature turns out to have also been a spy at some point or another. But that's not the only figure in the arts or, or the only country where this is the case, because it turns out that the Dutch painter Jan van Eyck was also a spy. Uh, and so this uh, takes us back, as I said, to the to the early Renaissance, where uh, at this point painters are moving on up socially. Uh, they've uh, are leaving behind the very best of them, the status that they had as mere uh, artisans, mere craftsmen, and uh, becoming uh, recognized figures. And they sometimes become important at court. And uh, if the only thing about that is once you become important in court. Uh, if you are not uh, just a standard upper-class twit, which you're not going to be if you're an accomplished painter because you've got to know your stuff and, and uh, uh, you know math and geometry and chemistry, managing a staff of uh, apprentices, you may be competent if, <laughs> if, you're, a, if you're a painter. Uh, you may have some yeah. discipline. You may have some smarts. Also, not to put too fine a point on it, you're probably middle-class, not upper class. So you're not the product of centuries of inbreeding. Exactly. Uh, and so once uh, your boss finds out you're not a twit, you may be uh, sent out on missions that have uh, nothing to do with painting stuff. So at this point, uh, while you're listening uh, folks at home, you may want to Google up uh, Jan van Eyck and uh, see uh, some examples of his work because uh, he was an early Renaissance painter, which means that the names of his paintings don't remind you of anything. It's like, Portrait of a man. <laughs> <laughs> right. So uh, get your visual bearings there. And Ken, uh, tell us about his uh, espionage career. Okay. In and around being the court painter to Philip the Good of Burgundy, uh, Philip the Good at that point was probably has been repeatedly referred to as the richest prince in Christendom, which may or may not be true. I'll bet, you know, Ivan the Terrible was probably, you know, packing it away, but Philip the Good did all right for himself, certainly, and he did. His kingdom sat basically right in the center of what was at that point the burgeoning commercial revolution in Europe. So he had a lot of bankers, he had a lot of super great cloth mills, and he had all of the trade uh, routes in Western Europe passing through his country, and he could get his nine percent or whatever it was from them. So Philip had a lot of money to blow on everything, and he did. Uh, one of the things he blew his money on was Jan von Eck. He makes him court painter in 1425 and pays him well. And then the reason we know that Jan von Eck was a spy is that Philip the Good, as with many rich people, hires a very good bookkeeper who writes down all the expenses. And the expenses for Jan von Eck include secret and distant journeys, quote unquote, or certain secret journeys or journeys to foreign lands under secret circumstances. And so uh, Van Eck would get a bonus when he would go on these spy missions. And at some point, circa 1435, he basically becomes not just, he, he collects two salaries. So he, he's not only got his court painter money, uh, he also gets a regular stipend, probably, and this is almost beyond the edge of the evidence, probably as someone who is helping to run the intelligence apparatus in Burgundy uh, from his home when he retires uh, in Bruges. So over the course of his career, uh, he takes many journeys. We don't know how many because they're secret and the accountant didn't list them all off. But we know, for example, that his first mission was, you know, probably his tryout mission was to Bruges and Lille. And it was maybe just a, while you're in court, keep an eye out and see if such and such a thing is happening. And because Jan Van Eck is, as we've implied previously, not adult, uh, comes back, gives a good report, maybe even painted a picture of the, of the questionable figure in question. And so he gets promoted and gets a much harder mission. This one in, um, uh, uh gets another mission in the summer. And then in October, he's paid off, uh, 1426, a secret and distant journey to certain distant lands. And the assumption in art historical circles is that that is a trip to, uh, the Middle East. And the reason the assumption is, is because we know that he also makes a pilgrimage for Philip the Good, 
uh, Phil of the Goods, like, if I, you know, win this dice uh, contest, I'll I'll go on pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And then it's like, oh, I can't go to Jerusalem. I'm a very busy, rich man. I'll send my painter to Jerusalem. It's basically the same <laughs> People thing. People get killed doing that. And so he gets, you know, approval from the archbishop to go ahead and send his painter instead. So Jan van Eck is his deputy pilgrim to Jerusalem. And again, we know he went on pilgrimage. We know it's to Jerusalem because it turns out that the uh, painting Three Marys at the Tomb has a remarkably accurate topographical image of Jerusalem in it. So it's literally where the Holy Sepulchre is, and Van Eck painted what it actually looked like, not the artistic assumptions of what it looked like. And that makes people think, oh, he must have been at the Holy Sepulchre and seen the the mountains and the hills and whatnot around it. So the notion that he went to Jerusalem is, it, while not proven, it is far from crazy people talk. And the implication is that Philip the Good was planning a crusade and wanted to have someone sketch out the territory. And so Van Eck may have painted more views of walled cities that we don't know about. We also know, for example, that he painted a lot of the local vegetation because it shows up in his uh, other works, including works that he started basically right when he came back. And, and so perhaps like the, uh, the port in Egypt where uh, you would go in if you're a, if you're a, a pilgrim, he would, he would have painted that. And so the notion of sending artists around to sketch maps or paint views because they probably didn't draft what we think of as military maps, uh, is it's already been going on in Italy right around the same time. So it's not impossible that this is what Van Eck is doing in summer of 1427. Probably he goes to Aragon. He goes to Tournai, which is another city in Belgium a couple of times, uh, in 1427 and 28 summer of 1428. He goes just on certain secret journeys. We don't know where he takes a long mission to Spain and Portugal. His cover mission, uh, in proper spy show style is to paint the Infanta Isabella, who is going to maybe marry Philip the Good if the painting comes out well and the marriage agreement comes out well. Right. And, and that was a very typical thing in that day is that, of course, you didn't have a photo of right. the uh, person you wanted to marry and you weren't uh, marrying for love. These are big time alliances. But nonetheless, the kings and nobles would absolutely commission a major artist to go and uh, uh, whip up a portrait. And uh, the objective there was uh, uh, not to be as necessarily as flattering as you would be afterwards when mm -hmm. this person became the the uh, countess or the uh, empress, but the uh, uh, the person wanted a you know a, a good quality uh, snapshot. And when you think about it, uh, an artist is an even better cover for espionage operations because they by profession go from court to court around painting different rich people and talking to them and have access. Uh, to uh, the the court and can pick up uh, all sorts of gossip. And as you also point out, they'd be uh, going around uh, sketching, not painting, because you in these days uh, artists <laughs> would drag paints around with them. Right. This was that was a job of work. You had to sort of compound everything in the lab where you were going to paint. Yeah, it was all very expensive, and it's not till the 19th century that uh, uh, people start actually uh, carrying little paint boxes with them. But uh, your uh, sketchbook could contain all manner of uh, important military information. So there are other cases of other artists being assembled to do uh, uh, this sort of work. But uh, Jan van Eck seems to have really uh, doubled down into the point of, as you suggest, possibly uh, also becoming a spy master. Yeah. And, and this is the uh, the Spain and Portugal trip is, I think, sort of the, the summit of his career. It's shortly thereafter that he, quote unquote, retires to uh, Bruges and just uh, stays there and doesn't follow the court around. But we know that he is sent on certain secret missions thereafter. And that's, as I say, when he gets his bump in pay so that they don't have to write out special tickets for every one of his missions because he, it's all coming out of his 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 big pay that he gets. Then we know in 1436, he goes to foreign lands under secret circumstances. There is a theory, which I don't know whether or not I buy, that he goes to Portugal again in 1437, hangs out with Prince Henry the Navigator and may have advised or again in some other way uh, gone ahead to prepare for Prince Henry's crusade in Morocco. And so that maybe he got loaned out 
to Prince Henry. And that's very fun. And of course, people who track Templars are, are hopping up and down on their feet and saying, Prince Henry the Navigator was a secret Templar. And it's like, well, he was so secret that there's no real history to back that up. But he was certainly connected with crusading orders. And why not? Right. So, well, if you want to prove that anyone is a Templar yeah. using a painting, the early Renaissance is the time to do that's, it. Because, that's your moment to do it. Yes. Because the whole style at this point, it's uh, highly mannered and extremely symbolic and often deeply esoteric. And so... Yeah, the uh, codes even, are already in it. <laughs> yes. Uh, even an ordinary portrait of somebody will have all of this uh, odd, uh, weird props in the corners and strange figures. And you can make your career to the end of time uh, trying to interpret what various... Uh, Renaissance paintings were meant to mean, and they were meant to mean uh, very, very specific things to the uh, person commissioning them. Uh, so, uh, for example, Giorgio Vasari's painting of the figure of uh, of justice, not only are all of the seven deadly sins chained to her belt, uh, but she's brandishing an ostrich. There you <laughs> so, go. <laughs> and you were supposed to, you know, read the the poems that the painter would uh, write that uh, went along with it, that explained, decoded all the little things. And I'm sure the, you know, the person commissioning the painting will, why did you put this helmet with a skull in it, the skull in that head as well, uh, my lord? This uh, shows that your perspicacity in uh, uh, funding uh, military campaigns and also paying extra to painters and, and so on and so forth. <laughs> right. So if you want to prove something nutty, Use an early Renaissance painting because uh, it's got ostriches in it. It's certainly good enough for the Holy Blood, Holy Grail people. It should be good enough for you. Right. And then in 1440, he basically retires completely. Uh, there is a mess uh, mention in the books that he provides Philip with, quote, a few panels, uh, meaning painted panels, and other secret objects. So this may have just been turning over all of his notes and sketches for the next guy to, to take over. It might have been, you know, secret treasures taken from Morocco under the guise of the Templars. Who can say? And then he dies in 1441, uh, his secret safe until people start deciphering Philip the Good's uh, account books, which doesn't happen for several hundred years. So Jan von Eck, as far as anyone can tell, Good at his job, well paid at his job, never betrayed by his master. If he works for another country, it's probably because his master was uh, cool with that. And uh, the Burgundian-Portuguese alliance that marriage to Infanta Isabella was meant to cement uh, held. So everything works out pretty great for Jan von Eck and at least until 1441 for the Burgundians. Now, it turns out that we uh, have a, a question in the hopper that uh, relates to this. Uh, because uh, Patreon, beloved Patreon backer VR Weather uh, wants to know about uh, the recent restoration of the Ghent altarpiece, uh, which is uh, uh, perhaps Van Eyck's most uh, famous work, uh, an extraordinarily uh, complex and allegorical uh, religious object. But uh, it turns out that once you restore uh, one of the sheep to Van Eyck's original version, that it looks suspiciously human-like. So, uh, can uh, which of uh, Van Eyck's uh, espionage missions uh, led him uh, to encounter uh, talking sheep? Well, to begin with, the Ghent altarpiece, it, it was done over the course of probably about um, uh, seven years. It's done by both Jan and Hubert von Eck. So, it's his brother Hubert. And then, this is something fun. There was also a, a, a Zeppo of the Van Ecks, Lambert Van Eck. Who no one ever talks about. So I just, I just like the idea of Lambert Van Eck is the, yeah. the, the sort of the Mycroft of the guys. He's hugely corpulent and he can't paint, but he's there, um, uh, giving them all good advice and, uh, chowing down on candied lark's tongues. But right. the, and, uh, and there'd also be a whole bunch, whole raft of other apprentices as well, because Renaissance Penning was a group effort. Yeah. Right. They're, yeah. They're a whole team, right? A, a, a veritable, a veritable basic, uh, cable friendly, a television show pile of, of apprentices and staff. But uh, the sheep in specific is not just any old sheep, Robin. It's the mystic lamb from the adoration of the mystic lamb uh, in the middle of the bottom middle panel. And the mystic lamb, as I'm sure everyone knows, is not just a lamb, it's Jesus. And so the weird human face of the lamb is an attempt theologically to say, Oh, this is Jesus. Look, he's looking at you with human eyes and he has kind of a people mouth. 
And then in 1550, everyone said, no, that's just creepy. And they painted a regular old lamb over it. <laughs> yes. The, the, the allegorical style of the early Renaissance, people got tired of it and they wanted things to be clearer. The particular Pope came in yep. and went, you know what? We, we want this to communicate to the people. Uh, no more ostriches. Uh, no more weird uh, sheep-like faces. Yep. This was also the same time that they went and they painted garments onto the Adam and Eve in the uh, in the in, in the Ghent altarpiece, who were anatomically correct, naked but not hot, <laughs> and <laughs> and so uh, I mean maybe they were hot for Belgium in 1426, but I don't know. And, and so the um, uh, I think the word went out. Look, if if we if it's not going to be hot, it has to wear clothes in church. That's just the rule. Um, so that was basically the same period of time. And the good restorers have also found, and this is. I think maybe more significant than the talking sheep or, or, or maybe not. They also found that one of the restorers painted over a set of buildings that is, uh, and they put a blue hill in front of the, of these specific buildings. And that is where your Templar uh, stuff comes out because of course the background of the adoration of the mystic lamb is the new Jerusalem, quote unquote, but the new Jerusalem would resemble the current Jerusalem. And so if there's a specific spot in Jerusalem that is significant to, oh, I don't know, maybe the Templars, Van Eck paints it into the altarpiece and it's there as a, as a code for people to, to look at. And then uh, in 1550, they're like, well, this code is sitting right out in the open. So let's cover it up. And while we're there, let's make the sheep less creepy. Or it was just uh, those buildings don't work. Let's put a hill there. It's a it's a veritable Van Eck conundrum. It is. It's. It, thank you, uh, Robert Ludlum. <laughs> well, yes. Let's pretend we're talking about Robert Ludlum and not that other guy. Yeah. So uh, I th- I think now that we've uh, uh, limbed the uh, the outlines and created the chiaroscuro of the espionage career of Jan Van Eck, we can move on to our next segment. The best of Askfageln is now available at Drive-Thru RPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on drive through. Save this podcast from mummification, besides such stalwart Patreon backers as... Kelly Fisher. Theron Bretz. Drew Clary. Dreaming Johnny. And Michael Kewell. The howl of the wolves, the patches of fog drifting across the foreground, that one weird tree sitting twisted in the back tells us we've once more wandered under the spooky confines of the horror hut. But, oh, Robin, that's not just fog, that's poison gas, and those aren't wolves howling, those are stukas. We're in a weird war world in the horror hut. And the weird war world, as we all know, best exemplified by things like the creature commandos of uh, DC Comics's, I don't know, try it era. And uh, <laughs> your classic weird war monsters. Uh, there are tons of, of stories of werewolves at war. I'm thinking of McCammon's uh, The Wolf's Hour is, is, I think, maybe one of the best werewolf war stories. Vampires at war, lots of those good ones, including ones including our, our buddy Dracula. Frankenstein's Monsters's. Also, of course, natural war things, what with all the corpses lying around, ready to be reanimated. But Robin, Robin wants to know, and I think we all want to know, and I think we certainly want to know over the course of the next uh, 15 minutes, uh, what about mummies, Robin? How about mummies in a weird war? And how, if we're talking about weird wars anyway, if only, I don't know, if only a, a recently released 
top-notch role-playing game had some sort of weird war component. Can you think of one, Robin? Yeah, I, I think that might be the Yellow King role-playing game, uh, which has hmm. uh, a, one of the four sequences is the wars. And uh, as you may recall, uh, this is an alternate reality, weird, horror-inflected war raging across Europe in 1947. And that allows you to uh, draw in elements from uh, all sorts of uh, war genres uh, and also uh, do things that are ahistorical, like have female characters, for example. And as you state, a lot of the classic sort of uh, monsters that we think of from Universal automatically kind of fit into that uh, setting. But uh, mummies, because of course they're uh, culturally specific, you, you might uh, not necessarily think of them as uh, hanging around a European uh, battlefront, but there's all sorts of ways that you can draw them in. And the uh, premise uh, in this case is that the uh, weird energy from the alien invasive world of Carcosa warps reality so that it can uh, take things that people are afraid of and make them real. Uh, it can possess things. The king in yellow in one of the chamber stories possesses a corpse. So uh, the most obvious thing to do then is have him or Camilla and Casilda or other uh, Carcosan nobles and courtiers uh, animating the, the corpses of uh, mummies. Uh, Egyptology uh, was all the rage uh, in uh, the late 19th century in France, as it was uh, in, elsewhere in Europe. And uh, the uh, the mummy of uh, uh, Seti I was uh, unearthed and uh, studied by a, a French archaeologist. So uh, the most obvious thing is just that the uh, treasures uh, from various uh, French uh, museums have uh, gone missing. They've been looted. They've been swept away because uh, they wanted to avoid uh, bombing and uh, that the uh, once they are uh, dislodged, that removes the uh, sigils, uh, keeping them uh, from uh, activating their various curses. So you could have, you know, your full-fledged uh, universal uh, monster style a mummy, who you'll recall is kind of Dracula-like in that he can appear as an ordinary person and has entrancing powers and uh, only later in the uh, Universal series does the classic bandaged uh, mummy that I think players want to make sure they run into uh, uh, shows up. Uh, but there's all sorts of ways that you could uh, get your uh, mummified uh, corpses uh, wandering around. Ken, that's the obvious one. What's the the second most obvious uh, way to do this? I mean, the second most obvious way to do that is um, Egypt is part of the war, right? It's an alternate history. There's no reason that Egypt can't be dragged into the Continental War either as a colonial appanage of one of the European powers or operating on its own hook. And so e either you're running into an Egyptian army or if Egypt is allied to France in this, in this war, you've got an Egyptian uh, observer. Um, he's, you know, P Professor Imhotep from Cairo and he's here, you know, observing things or Professor Karis, which is his name in, in the first uh, mummy movie. And as he observes things, you notice that, Gosh, a lot of people are getting strangled and their libraries are being uh, rifled, but it, it can't be good old Professor Karras. He's, he's downright uh, genteel. He, he sounds just like, oh, Boris Karloff. That's what he sounds like. That's not good. And then either Karras can be a mummy with, with powers like the Stephen Summers mummy, where he can summon up Egyptian plagues to, to fight you, or he can turn into a, a proper bandaged mummy when his magical glamour goes down, or He's taken a, any of the ample supply of dead bodies and made them into subordinate banded shuffly mummies that he then sends after the players in a, in a, in a wave or that he's been sending out to, to murder people. Maybe he brought a tame murder mummy from, uh, Egypt and has been using it as his, uh, as, as his, uh, operative. And so the question is, is Professor Karras, I mean, can you kill him? Is he legitimately still part of France? Is he working for the Carcosan element in the French government? What's what's his story? And I mean, you, you're going to want to kill him anyway, but are you going to get in trouble for it? Do you have to come up with a, a story about how he wandered into a period, an area of heavy shelling and was hit by a flamethrower a lot? Or what's the what's the what's the story you have to work out about? Professor Karras, or does Professor Karras say, yes, I've been investigating Carcosa. Uh, it attempted to manifest in ancient Egypt and we were able to drive it away with the, with the papyrus of Nath, which is what I'm looking for because it was looted by Napoleon and taken to France. And that's what I'm doing is hunting the papyrus of Nath. Won't you join me as we hunt down Carcosa and that, and now it's like, Oh, do we trust Professor Karras? What's his story? Is he, 
working for Carcosa and he wants the Papyrus of Nath so that he can become the, uh, the, 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 the timeless lover of Casilda? Does he want the Papyrus the same reason we want to, to, to shut down Carcosa? What's going on with that? And then he gets to become a enigmatic NPC and you get to use your Boris Karloff voice more often. Right. So does, does the Book of the Dead contain a ritual that uh, is described as heading to the Western lands, but in fact is a way to get to the shores of Lake Holly and, uh, uh, enter the court of uh, the Carcosans. Uh, another uh, thing you could do, though, is uh, uh, have the mummy imagery without specifically uh, calling in uh, Egyptian mythology. So it may be, uh, and perhaps you kind of use that idea of, you know, this turns out that the Book of the Dead, this translation refers to the Hyades a lot and Aldebaran and the method of mummification. And it, people thought that mummification was about getting to the Western lands, but actually is about uh, creating uh, animated uh, corpses that you could uh, command, or uh, perhaps the you know the main uh, mummy in a burial is the is is the uh, the commander, but the other ones uh, you can kind of take over the their controls because of course both sides are always looking for uh, ways to uh, find undead soldiers who are uh, expendable. And uh, it might be a, the obvious thing, of course, to, to do in this is have a zombie troops show up, uh, but uh, to have a mummification process that they uh, they undergo in order to be uh, rendered into the, this uh, condition, I think creates a, a fun, cool layer that, because uh, maybe you already use zombies for something else, right? And to have, yeah. uh, you know, an, an army uh, of, the, uh, of the undead, and then not only... Uh, are they driving the walkers, the weird walking tanks and the dragonflies, these strange stained glass winged helicopter things? Uh, but you've got to find uh, whoever it is who's uh, generating this new army and find a way to uh, stop the ritual because, uh, A, it's a problem that there are mummy soldiers. And also, again, that's obviously drawing in the powers of Carcosa, and that's the, the opposite of what you want. Right. And uh, on the specific connection between Aldebaran and uh, the Hyades and uh, all of this, I will remind our listeners, because of course Robin knows it, that Bram Stoker's mummy novel is called The Jewel of the Seven Stars. There are seven Hyades, depending on how you count them. So maybe that's, uh, it's all coded references to Carcosa and Jewel of the Seven Stars. Not that you can get great gaming fun by digging deep into Bram Stoker or anything, but I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, no, no one will ever attempt that. And the other thing, of course, is that the coffin texts, the famous uh, Egyptian magical coffin texts, are written on the inside of the coffin because the mummy is supposed to look at them throughout all of time and uh, have those uh, magically uh, get him into the, the other world. The coffin texts are connected to specific constellations, and you just find one of the coffin texts that has, oh, I don't know, Aldebaran and the Hyades in it instead of the other sort of uh, Sirius or the other sorts of stars that people often would use. And again, there's lots of, of coffin texts all yeah, over. Yeah, sure. If you get in this coffin, it will just transport you safe and sound exactly. to Carcosa. Just lie down in the coffin. Oh, and drink this. And drink this. And also library still. But that won't be a problem because you just drink that. Um, yeah, the notion that it, it, it could be a coffin a teleportation system that they're attempting. They've, they found the coffin. They've deciphered the coffin text that teleports you to Carcosa. And they're thinking, great, we'll just teleport a, a division of men through Carcosa to behind enemy lines. We'll win the war in a single stroke. And I, I think that we can all think of a million things that can go entertainingly wrong with that plan. Hopefully among them, the player characters disrupting it dramatically in some way. So that's another possibility is they're attempting to weaponize uh, the coffin texts and uh, utilize uh, the Egyptian world of the dead slash Lake of Hali as a uh, battle space. And that, of course, leads you into even more trouble. Right. And of course, you're missing a trick if you don't recall that the Egyptians mummified more than just people. Yep. Uh, so your uh, a squad of French soldiers could uh, have to fight mummified alligators. Uh, you could have a mummified cat uh, spying on you. And uh, so there's uh, all manner of uh, animal mummy action that you can uh, throw at your uh, at your players as well to uh, have some uh, fun sort of outlandish pulpy creepiness to balance out all of the uh, horror of the battlefield. Uh, and on that note, I think it's time for us to uh, get in our coffins, follow the instructions on the lid, which will surely take us to the final segment of this here podcast.
Suit up, agents of Delta Green. Your battle to save humanity from unnatural horrors is going beyond the Beltway. With Delta Green the Labyrinth now shipping in beautiful and weaponizable hardcover to a secure dead drop near you. Written by Delta Green co-creator John Scott Tynes, this all-new collection of organizations dives deep into the fissures of America in the new millennium. From the loathsome servitors of the 1%, to the hard-scrabble faithful of the Rust Belt, from the abusive warrens of the Internet, to the lonely chambers of every human heart, from the toxic legacy of the Cold War, to the doomed idealists trapped in a world they cannot save. American life has entered a labyrinth of twisty, turny passages. And while there are many ways in, there is no way out. Unless knowledge is a way out. In which case, find Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green The Labyrinth at your game purveyor of choice. Disclaimer, knowledge is not a way out. The clacking of time gears and the whirring of chronotons tell us that we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine. This, of course, is the conveyance that Time Incorporated uses to send our hero back into time to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes even mutilate it. And Ken, this is one of those times when we're talking not about a thing that you did to the timeline, because why would you, but uh, something that some sort of time enemy must have uh, done and that you had to rectify. But nonetheless, the question before us is, what does a timeline look like if the quasi-war erupted into full-scale conflict between the U.S. and France. And our listeners at this point may be going, I've never heard of the quasi-war. And the reason you haven't, my friends, is that it was a quasi-war. Right. What was the quasi-war? The quasi-war was a naval conflict between America and France after Jay's treaty with Britain that basically closed out the revolution and finished uh, and and put the the two countries on a roughly uh, peacetime footing of equals. France objected to that because by then they were at war with Britain for the wars of the French Revolution. Uh, They thought that that was a bad attitude. And uh, in addition, the United States had the perhaps forgivable notion that their old treaty with France was with the king of France, not with these guys who chopped off the head of the guy we made a treaty with. So... Oh, was that money we owed you? Guess we'll pay it to the dead guy. <laughs> yeah, we'll just hold it in trust for his ghost. Right, exactly. The The French thought that that was unsporting, to say the least, and began to uh, take it out by issuing, at the beginning, letters of mark for privateers to raid American shipping, because America, after Jay's treaty, began to trade with Great Britain uh, to a very great degree, because... We had all the pine trees and they were fighting a naval war. So uh, trading naval stores and other goods with the British kept everyone in, at least in New England, uh, rich, rich as New Englanders. And so rich as Yankees. And so the uh, uh, the French objected to that trade. They objected to the Americans uh, weaseling out of the treaty. So they said privateers can raid any American shipping that they want because we're at war. The United States... Uh, and this object- is 1798 to 1800. Right. Uh, the, the privateering uh, begins uh, in the 1796-97 era. And as the, the crisis boils up, uh, the XYZ affair, which we've discussed previously on this show, in which the French charge bribes to admit American ambassadors, creates a huge anti-French feeling, even amongst the Jeffersonian Republicans, who are the pro-France, the France simp party, if you will. Jefferson was was a, was a puppet of the Jacobins. Uh, everybody knew it. Uh, and so uh, even he, though, had to back down and allow President Adams to uh, build a real navy of actual frigates and raise an army. Uh, and raising an army was something the Federalists had had on their wish list forever. And uh, the Jeffersonians knew that that was the first step to tyranny. And you can't have a standing army in a republic because it just becomes uh, a machine for making coups d'etat. So they uh, draft up something called the New Army, which is 16 regiments of men. Uh, They lay down the keels of a bunch of frigates. And then they send American privateers out to fight French privateers. And then as the frigates come online, they begin fighting the French privateers. The French send their frigates into the war, and uh, lo and behold, they're still beaten by the American Navy. So it's uh, generally an American naval victory. Uh, the army is, uh, just as was predicted by Jefferson, becoming a political instrument and a political football. Uh, Alexander Hamilton maneuvers to become general of the army, uh, very much against John Adams's wishes. Uh, if John Adams had a wish, 
uh, General Hamilton would have been on one of the frigates and dropped over the side of it as it left New York Harbor. Well, I figured he, I guess he didn't want to miss his shot. He did not want to miss his shot. This was a, this was a big shot for him. He would get to, uh, and, and it, because George Washington, of course, was offered command. Uh, he's still alive until the end of 1799. And Washington says, I'm very old. I'll lead the army in the field if we're invaded by the French. But, but which, I have enough boats, man. Which I happen to know is not going to happen. Except so, in this other timeline, Ken. Except Except in this other timeline, um, in our timeline, John Adams basically makes peace with the French when the French send their first bunch of peace feelers because the directory government falls. Uh, Napoleon Bonaparte takes over in a coup d'etat, speaking of standing armies leading to coups d'etat, and uh, Napoleon has little or no interest in fighting a naval war with America when he's supposed to be concentrating on the uh, the, the British and uh, the Austrians and all the other foes that uh, France has right now. So he basically says, let's just call the stupid war off, and uh, we promise not to send any more privateers after you. And John Adams, in, in possibly the most brilliant piece of political backstabbing I've read about in a while, says, absolutely, let's do it. And he signs off on the peace. He sends peace ambassadors without consulting Congress, basically, to France, but he leaves Hamilton in charge of the army. And so Hamilton is sitting here on a standing army that now everybody hates because we don't need it. He's got to be collecting the taxes and doing all the paperwork for an army that no one is ever going to use. And it completely sidelines Hamilton and makes him mad as a wet hen, which is why Hamilton, of course, conspires to dump Adams in the 1800 election. It splits the Federalist Party, but it prevents war with France. But in the other timeline, one can imagine a particularly bold set of French privateers sailing into an American port. This was a standard privateering thing, sailing into an American port, capturing all the shipping laid up in the port and stealing it and then setting the port on fire to cover their escape. And this was absolutely standard methodology for Caribbean warfare. And if some bright French spark thinks of doing it to Newport, Rhode Island, let's pick a a thriving port at random and does so a thriving port without a particularly good uh, port uh, battery. Uh, it does so and sails away. That, especially if it happens right after the XYZ affair is revealed, that will lead to open warfare with France and uh, rapidly with France's ally, Spain. And the reason it will lead to warfare with Spain is because, remember Alexander Hamilton and that useless army? Now it has a use, and that use is invading Florida, uh, which Alexander Hamilton says in his in his diaries Gosh, if only I had an army, I would invade Florida <laughs> and maybe an Louisiana. A pretext. And you know what? I think South America is looking pretty tempting while I'm on the topic of things I'd like to invade. So already we know that Hamilton wants to invade stuff. If he's got an army and there's an actual shooting war going on with France, he knows that invading Florida and Louisiana are the best way for him to use his army, get glory, and because he's marching the army through the South to uh, bolster Federalist fortunes in uh, the South, uh, which at that point were were uh, rapidly d- disintegrating under the impetus of Jeffersonian uh, republicanism. Because the army, of course, being a Hamiltonian creation, because Hamilton's in charge of staffing it, guess who it's staffed by? That's right, Federalists and sons of Federalists. And so if you want your son to be in the army, then Hamilton's marching through North Carolina and he says, well, I don't know how much money have you given to the Federalist Party? I, I, so many, so many staff positions to fill. So many of them filled by Yankees and the, oh, no, no, no. So uh, the notion was that it would become a recruiting tool for the Federalist Party as well as an army for fighting the hated Spanish. So uh, in our timeline, that is exactly what happens. Hamilton marches the, the forces south. They seize Florida relatively easily. Again, Spain, while not uh, an empty shell, as it would be later on in its history, is still not able to defend its vast uh, territories. And by promising the South, uh, Florida to the South, uh, Louisiana to the West, Hamilton brings the sections of the country that would be anti-war. Uh, because even in our history, uh, Kentucky hated the Quasi War because all it did for them was raise their taxes and did nothing that they could see for Kentucky. So Kentucky, Pennsylvania, the sort of the Western agrarian states were not big fans of the Quasi War. But obviously, if they get New Orleans, suddenly everyone's on board with the Quasi War, the Franco-American War, as I guess you'd call it. So Hamilton takes uh, Florida. Hamilton takes Louisiana in our timeline. The British and Americans were sort of 
friendly co-belligerents. They were not allies. Perhaps in a open war with France, we become even friendlier co-belligerents. And this is either the opportunity for the British to um, pull out of those border forts uh, in exchange for American coordination and an attack, say, on Martinique or Guadeloupe, one of the big French sugar islands that uh, are basically funding the French war effort. Any number of possibilities of what the British might be willing to give us back Detroit for. So you would see a obviously a more pro-British tilt in American foreign policy. And if the war goes at all well, which in our timeline it did, even as a quasi-war, because the French, as it points out, as we've learned, are not a number one naval war uh, guys. And uh, the knock-on effects are not so great because America owning Florida 20 years early and Louisiana five years early, not giant effects. But the people that they cancel, that's big. Because if you remember, how does Andrew Jackson become the uh, beloved hero of America by conquering Florida and, and defending New Orleans from the hated British? So if we've done all that and the British aren't the hated British because maybe there's no War of 1812 or if there is, it's a different War of 1812 because we've already got uh, the Gulf. Um, it's a... It, 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 it shuts Jackson out. So possibly Jacksonian populism doesn't rise or the populist movement in America turns to Henry Clay, the other son of the, of the West. And, uh, Henry Clay is able to, uh, bring about mass enfranchisement without the, um, uh, downsides that Andrew Jackson brought to it. The other guy who might get canceled by the, uh, Franco American war turning hot is our buddy Napoleon because Napoleon is in Egypt. And there's a French Navy that is supposed to be supplying him. And if the French are suddenly in a real honest to God naval war with America, the French Navy turns around and sails out of the Mediterranean and it is not destroyed at the Battle of the Nile by Nelson. Uh, so Nelson is somewhat canceled, but Napoleon is really canceled because his Egyptian adventure goes south even faster than it did in our history. So I think listeners are still waiting for the part where canceling Jackson and Napoleon is bad. Well, it's bad because they hated British, Robin. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I, I'm amazed that I have to explain to you why canceling the War of 1812 is bad. It's like, oh, you know... Oh, right. Oh, right. Because we get to burn down the White House. Proceed. No, no Canadians could ever talk about anything. They just sit quietly and munch their Timbits. I mean, it would be, it would be a, a conversational disaster for my friends north of the border uh, if we, if we, uh, avoid the war of 1812. And there is a, a sort of a bank shot possibility. And I don't say this is the thing that always happens, but let's say it happens one out of every four times. There is an excellent book called Eagle and Sword, the Federalists and the Creation of the Military Establishment in America by a, a historian named Richard Cohn, who is writing about why the Federalists wanted a standing army, why the Republicans did not want a standing army. And he, in the course of defending Hamilton from the argument that Hamilton wanted to make himself king with a standing army, or at least make himself president and enforce political purges, does a really good job of making the argument that maybe Hamilton kind of wanted to purge all of his opponents and make himself president at the head of a standing army. So you get a possible... Hamiltonian presidency in 1800 or in 1804, depending on whether or not Adams gets shoved out of the party earlier or later. Adams and Hamilton probably still hate each other, but he can't replace Hamilton if he's a victorious conqueror. And then Hamilton can surely find enough trouble to get into on the southern frontier with the Spanish to keep his name in the headlines. So in 1804, Alexander Hamilton becomes president instead of uh, the second term for Jefferson. And that leads... Uh, like I need to tell you, to the Civil War early because the South is not going to sit still and let Alexander Hamilton tell it what to do. They hated him be way before it was cool. So we have a splintering of America. And who does that redound to the benefit of, Robin? The hated British, you're correct. So if you look at all of these things, the two most likely cancelings, uh, Jackson and maybe Napoleon, and then the bank shot, Hamilton becomes president, America comes apart, in civil war, because again, if he's got this army, he's going to be tempted to use it. And guess what? The South is full of people who want to rise up and shoot at the army then as now. Uh, so the destruction of America proves that this is a long con attempt by the, uh, what, what the great author John Crowley has identified as the great work of time, which is a sort of, uh, Cecil Rhodesian, uh, conspiracy of the hated British to 
slowly, ever so slowly, extend the pink on the map and win all those confrontations. So maybe because John Adams owes the British a favor, John Quincy Adams can't bully them out of Oregon. So the British get Oregon. Maybe if uh, Jackson is canceled, Henry Clay is more amenable to going along with the Canadians in, in the West or somewhere. Who can say? But all of it makes the hated British more powerful. So is this time incorporated UK? Uh, that did this that you had it, it could well it's time llc i believe is what it is time limited time ltd uk and then uh the the other possibility is it's lin-manuel miranda who did it because he's just like because he wants an even more complicated uh thing to turn into rap broadway he, he wants a he wants he wants a big a bigger story he wants to end him with president hamilton who is then assassinated by aaron burr or something like that or, or killed in the civil war or something i you can't rule in miranda uh lin-manuel miranda out uh, I don't think he has a time machine, but again, he might be a a, a glove uh, on the hand of the of the Cecil Rhodesian great work of time, hated British, uh, time limited. Well, well, I think Hamilton played the West End, so they could have recruited him then. They could have. They could have um, uh, uh, sucked him in with uh, their mid-Atlantic accents and their snotty ways. And, of course, uh, how did you revert the timeline? Was there like an easy thread to pull? I mean, they... the easy thread to pull is because, if you'll notice, the, the twist requires French naval officers to work correctly and together. And so getting Breton privateers to, to join in this is uh, getting them to unjoin is as easy as a bottle of fiery American whiskey and uh, a, a few drinks on deck. And suddenly it's like, Oh, there's softer targets over here. And also uh, why should we take orders from that guy? He's from a different part of Brittany and uh, the, the, the French uh, privateer fleet, uh, collapses. There's no sack of Newport, and uh, John Adams is able to just put the shiv into Alexander Hamilton, mm, just so perfectly. I mean, I'm not saying I don't run down to Braintree and hang out with Abigail, and you know, write up a couple of notes and give a couple of suggestions, but uh, but that's just that's really more off time than it is um, uh, the, the actual work, which is just uh, getting French ship captains to uncooperate, which again, it, it, not pushing a rock uphill in that case. I'm going to say. Right. Well, th there is a reason why history tends to unfold the way it does. Uh, and on that note, it's time for us to uh, exit this podcast. But if historical precedent tells us anything, it's that we'll be back with another episode a mere week from now. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrain Press. Asphagam. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music as always is by Jim Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Protect this podcast from the cannon fire of underfunding by joining such backers as... Diane Donaldson. Ethan Mr. E. Schoonover. Ian Mistrum. Jake Moss and Yuri Horneman wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin celebrate the book hound in your life with our latest design three points in library use on Twitter he's at Kenneth Height and he's at Robin D. Laws see you next time when once again uh, we will talk about stuff <laughs>